Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our time together. We thank you that we could gather together and learn more of your word. And we pray as we look at the attacks on Israel and the promises that you've given us, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be salt and light in a decaying culture, that we'd be able to help others understand the issues, that we'd have the gospel upon our lips, we'd stand for your truth. And, Lord, we do pray that you'd be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were together... I was teaching you about the attempt to destroy Israel, trying to kind of put our hands around some of the theological issues. And one of the claims that I've made is that I think there's a plan, and there's always been a plan, really, to wipe out Israel. It's a satanic plan to make God a liar who's not faithful to his promises. But I think Marxists and jihadists really do have a coordinated plan to attack the land of Israel and some of the promises. And so I do want to talk about that issue uh, last time, I'll do a little bit of review where we went. We talked about my central thesis is that Marxism is really a religion. It's really not a political movement so much as it is a religion about taking from the haves, giving to the have-nots, and creating a utopia that really in some sense is a counterfeit to the kingdom that Christ will bring. And so think about it as just another false religion that really wants to build Babylon while Christ will bring the new Jerusalem. That's really the distinction. Every false religion will give you Babylon where God gives you Jerusalem. And so that's the battle in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, there's two cities that are contrasted. There's the city of chaos, the city of Babylon, and then there's the city that God establishes that is Jerusalem or Zion. And so that's the battle. And so those who build Babylon are always doing so through human works, but Christ will bring Jerusalem by his grace. And so it's a battle between works and grace, a battle between Babylon and Jerusalem. And so there's just various facets. And so my central thesis is that Marxism is really a religion in which utopia, the building of Babylon, if you were to put it in those terms, is promised. And the role of government is to take from the haves and give to the have-nots. The way that's practically working out in our culture today is every group is seen, I should say, let me put it this way, every individual is seen not as an individual, but as part of a group, and you're either in a group that is an oppressor, or you are the oppressed. And if you are the oppressor, you are the enemy of the Marxist, and you can be an oppressor in various ways. You can be born the wrong color, you can have the wrong political view, you can have... Uh, too much wealth, whatever it may be, there's various ways, but you are an oppressor, and therefore the Marxist realm stands against you. And so what I'm claiming is that Israel and the United States have been placed on the list of being the oppressor, and the Islamic nations are seen as those that are oppressed. And so that's how the Marxists gather together with jihadists in order to wipe out Israel and the United States. So what I showed is that the biblical role of government is to restrain evil. When Marxists take over government, it changes from restraining evil to redistributing wealth. And that's why for many years you recall that Code Pink, which is a Marxist organization, would stand against any form of governmental intervention in the world to restrain evil. Now that Israel is being attacked, all of a sudden Code Pink is fine with that violence. And so years ago in the 90s when I said, hey, don't listen to these people. Code Pink doesn't care about violence as much as they claim. They just want the right people to be hurt. That's really the issue. And so, again, that's what Marxists do. And I showed you from the very beginning the battle between the haves and the have-nots began with Cain and Abel. Abel believed. Cain didn't. Abel, therefore, was a have. He had the blessings of God. And there's no larger group of haves than those who have the promises of God. There's no greater have category than you can have by being a believer. In other words, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, you are the ultimate have. But those who don't are the ultimate have-nots. And so from the very beginning of time, Cain, who could have been a have, he could have had the promises of God applied to him, he could have had the forgiveness of sins. He could have had eternal life. But what? He wouldn't believe. And so did he say, you know what? I should really repent. I should really listen to the Lord and do that which is right. The issue wasn't the type of offering he had. The issue was whether he would offer it in faith. And he wouldn't. 
And so instead of becoming a have himself, having the forgiveness of sins, he murdered Abel, who had the promises. And so what I wanted to show you is that all the way through time, there's a battle between these two groups. I'll pull up my pointer between those who are blessed by God and those who are cursed. And that's ultimately the fight against believers in the world today. And I think that the battle against Israel is really manifesting itself in this way as well. That those who are blessed, those who have the forgiveness of sins, are under attack. Okay, so what I showed you is I gave you this list. So we covered all of this last time, just giving a summary. This is a list throughout history where the promises of God were under assault. You can see all of these. Um, let me just stop with Jesus here for a moment. Remember when he's born, Jesus is a descendant of Jacob, but who tries to murder him? Well, Herod. Herod was an Edomian. Herod, therefore, was an Edomite. Herod, therefore, came from Esau. Jesus came from Jacob. Jesus is a descendant of Jacob, the little baby. He's ultimately the king. King Herod can't stand it. What does he try to do? He tries to murder him. Why? Because Jesus has the promises, the descendant of Jacob, not the descendants of Esau. Israel today was attacked, and I mentioned Luke 21, 24, that the attack on Israel will last. It shouldn't be a theological crisis. It actually validates our Bibles. Why? Because Jesus said in Luke 21, 24, that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot until the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. I mentioned that Bob DeWay has taught and written about the importance of a creed, the term until. You can't have an event, or I should say until cannot be used for a non-event, right? If I say I won't come until, it doesn't mean I'm not coming. It means there's something that has to occur first. And so the idea then is that Israel will in fact be attacked until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled and the time for their kingdom is to come. I also mentioned Israel's future, Revelation 19. That depicts all of the nations that will come against Jerusalem, but that's when Jesus Christ will intervene in history and destroy the enemies surrounding Jerusalem and set up his kingdom. And so that's where we left off last time. And so now what I want to do is begin on this next slide where I want you to see that Satan's desire is to make God a liar regarding the promises that he's given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and by extension, the promises that he's given to us who were grafted in to the promises of Israel the moment we believed in the gospel. And so I want you to see a, a, a prophecy that actually dates back to, I believe, the ninth century. This is the book of Joel. And what I want you to see is this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Okay, so let's read it. And by the way, remember... When we talk about these chapter and verses, they were added later. And in some sense, this obscures, when you're in Joel 3, it's connected immediately to Joel 2.28 and 29. So keep that in your mind. Because Joel 2.28 and 29 is about the institution of the last days. Now, why is that important? Because notice it says in Joel 3, 1 through 3, it says, for behold, in those days and at that time. So stop there. When is that? Well, that's in the future. It's in the last days. Now, we're living in the last days, so when this will come about, we don't know. But it's in the last days. Now, let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles. I, I don't want to even go any further, <laughs> because if we don't interpret this correctly, we're not going to get the rest of it right. Turn your Bibles to Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17. And the reason I want you to turn there is I want you to see how Peter understood Joel 2.28 through 29, or really through 31. Okay, now why is that important? Because that is connected directly to Joel chapter 3 that we're reading here. Okay, so again, please turn your Bibles to Joel 2.28. I'm sorry, not Joel, uh, Acts 2.17, where Peter is citing Joel 2.28. Acts 2.17, so remember, this is Pentecost. So listen to what Joel, how Joel is being used by Peter. Acts 2.17, Peter says this, he says, And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, what is Peter citing from there at Pentecost? He's citing from Joel 2.28 through 32. That's what he's citing from. Well, that's connected immediately to Joel chapter 3. 
So notice here in the beginning of Acts 2.17, he says, and in the last days. So here we have authoritative commentary on what it means in those days. What days? It's the last days. Does everyone see the connection? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is applying Joel 2.28 through 32 to the last days. Notice it says here in verse 1 of Joel 3, it's connected, for behold, in those days and at that time. So this is going to happen sometime in the last days. Notice he says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. Stop there. This is the first promise, really, I think, in the prophetic literature about the restoration of Israel. I think it dates to the ninth century. So there's already a promise of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now notice he says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Now, I want you to notice, what is God going to do? Well, eventually, he's going to someday gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, gathering of all the nations, I take that literally. It's going to be all the nations. Now, why is that important? Think about in eschatological battles, oftentimes we're battling with preterists who are claiming what? That all of this was fulfilled in 70 A.D., that's when it all happened. We have nothing left in the future. I've been debating preterist after preterist after preterist. They believe this is all fulfilled in 70 AD. Well, the problem with 70 AD is there's one nation that came against Jerusalem. How many nations are going to come against Jerusalem here? All the nations. So is many nations the same as one nation? No. Okay, so we're going to do the Sesame Street game Two of these things aren't the same, right? Or however they used to say it. I remember as a kid, one of these things is not the same, right? So we know right there that this is not what happened in 70 AD. The other thing is notice here, God is going to enter into judgment with them at the Valley of Jehoshaphat. In fact, Jehoshaphat means Yahweh Shophet in Hebrew. Yahweh is obviously God's name. Shophet means judge. So it is the place of God's judgment. So in 70 AD, were all the nations judged and Israel restored? Or was Israel smashed by the one pagan nation? Well, of course, that's what happened. So notice this can't happen in 70 AD. So right away, this has to be something that's going to be what? It's in the future. All right, so notice he says in red, I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. So there, at the very end, and this is what I believe happens at the very end of the 70th week of Daniel. That's the last seven years that happens prior to the Messiah setting up his kingdom. In fact, remember in Matthew 24, I'm thinking around verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, you will see the sun, moon, and stars affected. Well, he's alluding to that very thing that you see in Joel 2, 28 through 32. That's what he's referring to. He's referring to that time period. Okay, so that's when this is going to happen. So the great promise is that God is going to judge all of the enemies that are trying to wipe out the people of Israel. And this has never happened in human history. There has never been a time in human history that all the nations came against Jerusalem and God supernaturally intervened. If you read it here, I'll give you a cross-reference. If you take Zechariah 14, 1 through 4, it's the same battle that's being referred to, where Jerusalem will be surrounded, and then the Messiah himself will intervene by setting his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's the same battle. It's the same battle being depicted in Revelation chapter 19. Now, why is this important? Because here, obviously, God is not done with Israel. He's going to restore her. Notice he says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, and he's going to judge the enemies that come against her. All right? Now, why does that matter to us? You might say, well, wait a minute, Eric. I'm a Gentile Christian living in the United States in the year of our Lord, 2024. What does that matter to me? Well, it matters a whole lot because you were grafted in. It's your kingdom, too. 
It's your promises too. The moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you were grafted in to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You belong to Yahweh. In fact, the only people who come by faith alone and Christ alone will be partakers of this great kingdom. The great promise is one day Israel will be brought to faith in their Messiah. That's the great promise. So here, notice in Romans eleven seventeen, Paul is talking to Gentiles primarily, warning them not to be haughty. He says, but if some of the branches, these would be the natural Israelites, were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So notice, stop right there. What I want you to simply see in this passage, I don't want to go any further than the idea we were grafted in. Now, let me give you the four imageries of the olive tree, and you can jot them down as a note taker, because believe it or not, the olive tree imagery is actually somewhat, it's not overly complex, but there's a little bit to it. So let me give you the four images that Paul is deriving his olive tree imagery from. Let me explain how it works. So first of all, you have a cultivated olive tree in Romans 11. The cultivated olive tree is Israel. So what's the cultivated olive tree? Well, that's Israel in Romans 11. Second, you have a wild olive tree as part of the metaphor. What's the wild olive tree? Well, those are the Gentiles. Third, you have branches that were broken off. Well, what are the natural branches that were broken off? Those would be individual Israelites. That's number three. So, so far we have the cultivated olive tree, that's Israel. We have the wild olive tree, that's the Gentiles. And we have the branches that were broken off, the natural branches, those are individual Israelites. And there's a fourth element to the imagery, and that's the nourishing root, as Paul calls it. The nourishing root is that of the promises and the patriarchs. The promises were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the root of the whole tree. And so you're either part of that root or you're not. And so the idea then is you and I as Gentiles, which were a wild olive tree, we were different than the one that God was cultivating. The idea is that we were grafted in. So the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you became grafted in to the promises given to Israel. In fact, Bob was giving a message one day and it hit me like a bolt of lightning. He says, we were not only grafted into their promises, but also their persecution. The moment you believed, you became an enemy of Satan and his minion who want to make God a liar and to try to overthrow all of his promises. The moment you believed upon Jesus Christ. So do you see then that this idea that Israel stands is not a subsidiary doctrine. It is a gospel doctrine if we understand, in fact, that we were grafted into their promises. Yes, Linda. Okay, so hopefully I can make this seem sense. So, but how do, are there some promises that are still just for Israel? Like the whole thing with, um, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, because I know that many use that for all the people who have all these dreams. Right, Today. right. So, exactly. So what I would say is the, the promise is for all who believe. That is for the, the sending of the spirit. So the, the sending of the Spirit is going to be universal. It's going to come upon all mankind, meaning Jew and Gentile, a king and the lowliest. It's the highest and the mightiest, the man and the woman. And so the, um, I wouldn't say that someone has a dream today and that it's somehow divine or somehow they're a new prophet. I think the prophets and apostles have been laid once and for all. So we have to get rid of that idea. But we have to understand that the promises of the sending of the Spirit isn't just for Israel as if it's only for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it's for all people that are God's elect, whether Jew or Gentile, that he will use the Spirit to convert them, bring them to faith in the Messiah, and they become partakers in the root of the olive tree. Right. Well, then also like, well, but then how we also talk about the land, when they talk about the land, that's just Israel. Like when there's when they see promises for the land yeah. and then people will use that like for the US. 
Exactly. So the United States is not Israel. There's only one nation. And by the way, I actually have a, a message prior to this that I'm going to be putting out on YouTube that gets into that. The only reason I didn't share that with all of you is simply because Bob and I have hit that so many times, the Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, where there's one nation that belongs to God, it's Israel. And every other nation belongs to the angelic realm, the divine council as their inheritance. So in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, there is an inheritance that the angelic realm is given, whether good or bad. Some of the nations maybe belong to good angels, bad angels. We don't know. that We're, we're not given the delineation of which angels have which nations. That's never expressed to us. All we know is that the angelic realm, the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, they are given all of the nations except one. There's one nation that is the inheritance of Yahweh, and that's Israel. Okay, so that's why he's so zealous, as you see in Joel 3, that his promises to them will not ever be discarded. What I'm claiming, however, is that the way we should think of it biblically as Gentiles is that the moment we believed, we were grafted into their promises. It's not that you were excluded because you're a Gentile from the promises of Israel. The fact is the moment you believed in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, you became a partaker of that kingdom. And the irony is that there are natural branches who are genetically descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to be excluded. So you're going to have a kingdom that's inhabited by every single people, excuse me, every single person, whether Jew or Gentile, that believes in the Jewish Messiah. But the kingdom is coming to Israel. And there is a promise that, yes, indeed, all Israel will be saved as we see also in Zechariah 12.10, that yes, in the future, they will be brought to faith in the Messiah. So does that help answer the nuances, Linda? Sort of. It's hard to explain to a friend who gets mad at you when you... Anyway. <laughs> okay, what, what do they get mad about? Well, because I said... Because she believes in all the dreams that everybody is seeing. Okay, about dreams. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I understand because I get that uh, feedback from some of my articles. So the... The, the dreams, the visions and dreams are associated with, in the Old Testament with pr prophets yes. such as Ezekiel and Jeremiah and so on who speak for God. But the prophets, for example, under the Old Testament weren't lawgivers. They were speaking um, to Israel about application that they're apostate or they're not listening to what God said or they're predicting the future, yeah. which they did, including a future messianic uh, occurrences, such as what happened in Matthew, yeah. that Eric was talking about when he was preaching last. So that was the Old Testament prophets. But earlier under Moses, there were a bunch of people prophesying, and they said, should we stop them? And he said, no, well, what did all God's people were prophets? Amen. So the, the issue was the thing associated with prophets, that the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they had means of revelation, such as dreams and prophetic utterances and whatever, right. or visions, that that now is not excluded from the general peop people that are believers. But the actual binding, inerrant, authoritative prophecy comes from Christ and his apostles and prophets. Amen. We learn that in Ephesians. Amen. But that does not mean that every believer doesn't have a prophetic function, okay? Yeah. Not to predict the future, because you don't want to do that and get it wrong. But nowadays, the apostles and prophets get things wrong all the time, and they go, oh, well, I'll try next time. Yeah. That didn't work too good under the Old Testament. Right. They'd be dead. Right. But now they, they change the rules, change the definitions, and they just say anything they want to anybody they want, how often they want, and be wrong all the times they want. And now the Holy Spirit's lying, if you believe them. Wow. They don't say that, but they'll say God or what says Christ or the Holy Spirit, and then they lie. Yeah. Amen. Well, God didn't send them. So you apply the actual uh, requirements, Amen. they're in big trouble. That's right. And they'd all shut up tomorrow. All right. But they have no fear of God. 
But what does it mean? It means declaring the mighty deeds of God. Amen. And that's what was going on even with that group in the Old Testament. Yeah. And that's what happened with some of the people under Moses, the songs, when they declared the mighty deeds of God or under David. And so believers under the new covenant declared the mighty deeds of God, yeah. who, who Christ is, his mighty works, redemption, atonement, the, yeah. the things he did to prove his deity, his ascension, the fact that he's omnipotent, he hears our prayers, and that he's coming again. Yes. The terms of salvation, the application of things that are given under the new covenant, all can come under that rubric of prophecy. Amen. Um, it doesn't mean everybody has, the time somebody has a dream, it means what's stocked by, or whatever they're trying to do with it. Yeah. And frankly, it's just so misdirected that the reality has been sullied to the point where people just give up on it all yeah. and become uh, just skeptics about God being at work. Yeah. So what I intend to do by God's grace, but I'm still on the face of the earth, is to get through 1 Corinthians and deal with this in the gifts, <laughs> uh, the chapter on love, the 1 Corinthians 14, you may all prophesy, yeah. What it really is is still profound. Amen. But the people that want something more, they're not satisfied with how God runs his universe, have so distorted it as to make it worthless and meaningless. Yeah. Because 90% of it is false. Yeah, and the part that isn't false is the few times they actually preach the gospel. Yeah, amen. And people are converted. That wow. bores them. The gospel bores them to death. Yeah. We want signs and wonders. We want a theophany. We want a manifest presence. Amen. We'll talk about that in my sermon. Yeah. It didn't go so well to the ones that did have. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they didn't go so well. 23,000 died in one day. It right. wasn't good. Yeah. When does that help? Um, the passage you may want to share with them is uh, the person that's into the dreams and stuff with modern-day prophets. It almost sounds like they're into that. Maybe Ephesians 2.20, that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And then Jude 3 added to that, you know, we have a faith once and for all handed down to the saints. So think of the last days. Think of the last days as a corporate whole that God in the last days that is initiated at Pentecost, the finished work of Christ, it's finished when he sends the Spirit. He has a perfect life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. He sends the Spirit. Last days. Now you're in the last days. The last days is a whole. There's going to be a people that is saved in the last days, Jew and Gentile, by God pouring out his Spirit. But that doesn't mean that everything is uniform in time. In other words, in the, in the first century, you have the apostles and prophets deposited. Remember in Ephesians 4, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as evangelists, some as teachers, etc. So he gives us those gifts, but it doesn't mean he keeps giving us modern-day apostles and prophets. That's been laid once and for all. So then what we have, as Bob is showing us, is we have people who have the apostles and prophets' word. And then you and I can functionally prophesy as it's stated in 1 Corinthians 14, not in the sense of coming up with new revelation that's binding, but in the sense of giving accurate interpretations and implications and applications of the divine word that's been revealed. So we don't have apostles and prophets all the way through the, the time of the last days. They were deposited at the very beginning, and therefore we have that. And so... It doesn't mean when he says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, it doesn't mean that the gifts are going to keep coming in the sense we have apostles and prophets unto perpetuity, that it just keeps going. That wasn't the point of that. Bob is exactly right. The book of Numbers, remember you had the 70 that prophesied? And remember Moses is asked by Joshua, should we prohibit them? And Moses says, oh, that all my people would prophesy, not just me. And so that was the great hope. And then you see that reiterated here. Yes, Bob. Yeah, I think we can shed some light on that and some of the material we've had in the sermons lately that we've covered. That didn't mean there was somebody who could challenge Moses with different or new material. Right. So that was Korah. 
Yeah, Korah's rebellion. Yeah. So you got to distinguish between Korah and these other ones that yes. Moses said, don't stop them. What's the difference? Korah claims he's the source, he and his cohorts yes. are the source of direct revelation from Yahweh. But no, it was just Moses that went to the tent of meeting. Mm. So they were challenging Moses. Now, what's going on in, by analogy under the New Covenant yeah. is the direct revelation that has been given has been handed down once for all. Amen. Okay, through Christ and his apostles and prophets. The challengers are more like Korah. They're saying, no, we don't have to be restrict, restricted to Christ and his apostles and prophets, the real ones who wrote the Bible. We have apostles and prophets, and we can be like Korah and get our own direct word, and we can have our own ten of meeting, and we can have our own theophany, and we can have our own miracles, yes. and we're going to be those people. And that is apostasy. And what you'll notice, and in fact, we were just talking about that. You heard about this Dutch cheats from somebody? Uh, Jessica and I did this whole series with this Dutch cheats, claims to be a prophet. And one thing we noticed, this massive book with all kinds of scriptures in, we went through page after page after page for 41 episodes. Wow. You know what we did not find? One time where he got a Bible verse right. <laughs> How can you be wrong 100% of the time oh, when really you interpret bad. the Bible? Yeah, that's bad. Because you're now speaking for God. You're Korah, wow. not Moses. Wow, a good category, yeah. Because you would want to know what it means and then get it right. right. If you have so little fear of God, you don't really care what the Bible says, you have your own agenda. Yes. So he'd have some dream or vision and then find a Bible verse that sounds like that, say, that must be what this means. Wow. So if we get those categories right, we don't have to say the gift ceased. I know that's what a lot of people say. I yeah. think that's a weak argument. Yeah. And somebody will take it and beat you with it if you use it as an argument. Yeah. No, we've got to get those categories right so that what prophesying is, is real, but it's declaring the mighty deeds of God Yes. and applying f actually messianic prophecy to the gospel, to implications of our mutual salvation, to exhortation, edification, and comfort, to assuring believers that they have the righteous peace and joy of the Holy Spirit. There's so much, but they're bored with that. They want to see America's going to be cursed because they didn't keep yeah. the Jewish law. Jonathan Kahn, yeah. false prophet, right, right there. Right. The whole evangelical world should have said, yeah. Jonathan Kahn's a false prophet, we'll never hear him again. Right. That's but right. he just writes more books, he's falsely prophesying, and nobody cares. Yeah. As soon as they don't care, they're not Moses, yeah. they're Korah. That's a great category. Yeah. Does that help, Linda? Excellent categories. Thanks, Bob. Uh, I just wanted to real quickly, because I think, Eric, you and I had a little conversation this yeah. week about you know world our worldview as a believer. What's right. my worldview? And that covers many categories. And throughout history, you know, you have, um, you know, back in the medieval time, they had mysticism, which is what we're talking about with these dreams and things. We don't always know. Yeah. But then we move into the modern area, and we get it, you know, we jettison faith, we jettison, you know, anything to do with supernatural. And now we're into postmodern. And postmodern has no logic. They don't have. Um, uh, they don't want rationality. Yes. And so you're taking people who have mysticism, but they have no logic or boundaries or categories, like Bob is saying. They've exactly. eliminated them. So it's a free for all. That's right. And so we have to understand what our worldview, you know, is. It, it encompasses a lot of topics. Right. But that is a misplaced worldview for a believer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely. So in the battle of epistemology, which is the simple term that means the, the study of knowledge, we have gone from foundationalism to coherentism. And what that means is what we used to believe, what Americans usually agreed upon, was that truth was defined as that which corresponded to reality. That was jettisoned in the 90s in academia in America. It was jettisoned much earlier than that um, in academia throughout the world, especially in Europe. But those ideas became predominant in the 90s, 
And that's what led to the emerging church movement that we fought against. And so the idea in postmodern epistemology is truth is defined if all of us agree on it. So if all of you and I agree that it's 75 and sunny, it's 75 and sunny. Okay, you narrative build. You build narratives that aren't connected to reality. And this is where it ties into the oppressor versus the oppressed. What the left assumes is that the oppressor has the power to get everyone to agree. Okay, so the history books used to be written by those men who were the oppressors, and therefore they just got everyone to agree on a different reality. Because reality, you can't access to reality. That's what they keep telling us. So reality is simply defined by the people in power. That's the root of critical theory, which is the root of critical race theory, critical theories of all kinds. That's the root of it, that you can't know truth. Bob DeWay rebuked that years ago, calling them the little, the little engine that can't. I think I can't, I think I can't. Well, yes, we can. We can come to a true interpretation, and we must, because Jesus, the creator of all things, said, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words that I have spoken, John 12, 48. John says in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. Postmodern generation says you can't know. John the Apostle says you can know. Which way are you going to go? I'm going with the Apostle John. I'm post-postmodern. I am a rebel against the postmodern movement. And by the way, all of you are. You are all modern-day rebels and revolutionaries against the system of post-modernity. Why? Because you belong to Jesus Christ who made you in his image as the creator, a rational being. And, that, and Bob has been fighting this for 30, 40 years now. So thank you. And um, great question, Luann. Great question, Linda. And yeah, thank you. So let's keep going here. We'll keep going into this idea that we were grafted in to the promises of Israel. In fact, here's how important this is. This is a gospel issue. What I want you to see is the attack on Israel is a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. It's a gospel issue. I'll say it again. It's a gospel issue. Okay. How many here think that the resurrection is part of the gospel? Does everyone agree? Well, let's turn our Bibles. When does the resurrection happen? Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 11.15, two verses prior. Romans 11.15. I think the resurrection is very important. And notice how Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, notice the timing of what he ties it to. When is the resurrection going to occur? Romans 11.15. Notice he says, for if their rejection... Notice, I hope everyone's on Romans eleven fifteen. Notice he says, for if there, he's talking about Israel, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, we have an interpretive issue. What does it mean? What's the relationship between the rejection, the apobole in Greek, and the acceptance, the prolepsis, so is it Israel that's either rejecting or accepting? Or is it God that's either rejecting or accepting? I think it's the latter. So the idea is that God is sovereign. Remember, he's the one who by his spirit, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Is that correct? So doesn't he promise in Zechariah 12 that he'll pour out his spirit in the last days? And that they'll, remember in Zechariah 12, 10, He'll pour out his spirit on the house of David and they will look upon the one whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. That's a prophecy that has not yet been fulfilled and it's about the future spirit being poured out in mass upon Israel where they will come to faith in the Messiah. So the rejection and the acceptance is ultimately that of God. And so what's being stated is in the past, now that during the church age, during the time of the Gentiles, the last days. Are you with me? The time period we're in from Pentecost until he comes, by and large, the attention has been on the Gentiles. Why? Because there was a rejection of Israel. But notice he says, if the rejection meant reconciliation of the world, world is being used there for the Gentile world. Why? Because what God did is, is he temporarily hardened Israel. He turned his attention to the Gentiles and you and I were grafted in. That's what he says two, two verses later. 
that we just saw on the, on the screen. But what he's saying is, hey, it's a lesser to greater. If the lesser hardening or rejection of Israel was a blessing to every Gentile because we came to faith in Jesus, how much greater will their acceptance be back into the fold? What's it going to lead? Life from the dead. What is that? Well, that's the resurrection. Because it's in the 70th week of Daniel, the very beginning and at the very end, that you have the resurrection, the first resurrection. Because remember, you're going to have the rapture, but you're also going to have those who die during that period, and they're not going to miss out either, the ones who had been beheaded because they wouldn't take the mark of the beast. Revelation 20, verses 3 through 4. Right, so the point is the resurrection is tied to the 70th week of Daniel, which what happens then? The restoration of Israel. That's where they come to faith. Okay, let's go to the wilderness. God promises in Hosea that he's going to bring Israel into the wilderness one day and they're going to believe. Why? Because the first time they went to the wilderness, they gaffed it. They wouldn't believe. So Hosea the prophet predicts that one day God is going to bring Israel back into the wilderness. They're going to believe. Lo and behold, John the Baptist comes on the scene of history and where does he meet the Israelites? He meets them in the wilderness. Maybe this is their opportunity. Maybe they'll come to faith in Messiah. Maybe they will have everlasting life. No, by and large, they reject him. So in the 70th week of Daniel, read Revelation chapter 11 through 12. Where does God bring Israel as they flee from Antichrist persecution? Into the wilderness. And where do you think they come to faith? They come to faith there in mass. And so what is that tied to? It's tied to the time period of the resurrection. So if the resurrection is tied to the restoration of Israel, but Israel's never restored and is destroyed, are you with me? Do you see, do we have, Houston, we've got ourselves a problem. You can't have the resurrection tied to the reestablishment of Israel, but oh, by the way, Israel's destroyed. Well, what about the promise of your resurrection? Is that promise not destroyed? Then how is this not a gospel issue? Then how can we have people following preterists who are saying, well, all this happened in 70 AD? Really? Really? When, when was my grandma still in the grave? How many here know that Christ isn't reigning? None of the nations are flowing up to worship him in Jerusalem. And we haven't been given our resurrected bodies. And so all we have in preterism is the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus who said to those in their day, the resurrection's already occurred. It's heresy. It's a $3 bill. It's evil. No, the protection of Israel by God is a gospel issue because our resurrection, we were grafted into this, is tied to the restoration of Israel. It's a gospel issue. And so it's not a subsidiary issue. It's a core issue. And so that's why we see the enemies of God attacking Israel so and so what I want to lay out, and I know Bob and I have done this for many times, but I want to do it again, is that ultimately these doctrines that false teachers teach, and it doesn't matter what the religion is. It doesn't matter if it's Islam. It doesn't matter if it's the Jehovah Witnesses who have a different Jesus. Or it doesn't matter if it's a Marxist. Or if it's someone involved in an Eastern religion. It doesn't matter. The issue is the doctrines that men teach that are apart from the Bible ultimately stem from the demons. And I want to lay that category out because I want to show you that Marxism is indeed a demonic religion. Colossians 2.8. Notice here in Colossians, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. Remember what philosophy is, the love of knowledge that men have a part, in this case, of God's revelation. Take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now notice here, where do the false doctrines come from? Well, notice he does not want them to be taken captive, these Colossian Christians, of doctrines that come according to the human tradition. The preposition there, akata, it's K-A-T-A, it's a preposition of reference or standard. So here what's being stated is that the standard or the source or the reference of this teaching is that of human. It's not, it's not from God. That's the idea. It's not according to God or according to Christ, who is God, but it's according to humanity. But notice he adds to that according to the elemental spirits of the world. Elemental spirits, I don't, I don't like that translation. I don't understand what elemental exactly means, but Bob has done good work. If you look up his uh, 
CIC article on Colossians chapter 2. The term there is stoikion. And what that is, it's a reference to the demonic beings. Stoikion, it's the demonic realm. So notice you have another kata here, preposition. So the ultimate source of the false teaching that could take them captive is from the demonic realm. So the, de the demons give it to the humans and the humans give it to other humans and they're deceived by it. Now, let me have you turn your Bibles. No, by the way, let me just back up. Notice it says, and not according to Christ. There's kata again. So where's the source of all good, true teaching? Well, it's Christ. He's the one who gets, sends the Spirit. The Spirit gives us the apostles and prophets, the scriptures, etc. So he's the source of real teaching. So we should listen to the teaching that comes according to Christ, but not according to the demonic realm, which is handed then to humans. So turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 22, 21 through 22. 1 Kings 22, 21 through 22. Remember, this is where Ahab is brought to his destruction, the wicked king of Israel. Well, who brings him to his destruction? Well, his lying prophets. His lying prophets say, oh, yes, the Lord has handed the enemies over to you. You're going to win. Well, who gave the lying prophets that message? The demons. The demons. And particularly one demon in 1 Kings 22, 21 through 22. Now, we would not know this if God had not revealed it. Bob mentioned some time ago that it's like God pulled away the curtain in this passage and allows us to see behind the scenes in the throne room as to what's going on. So here we have a throne room scene in God's throne room. And notice it says at 1 Kings 22, 21 through 22, it says, Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I will entice him. I will entice Ahab to battle for his destruction. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will put a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him. You shall succeed. Go and do so. Notice who's sovereign over it. God is. He's using a demon for his purposes. The demon is going to put the message in the false prophets. The false prophets are going to lead Ahab to his destruction. But the doctrines went from the demons to the humans and then therefore to another human. And what I'm claiming is that's exactly the root of all false teaching. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, put on the, the whole armor of God. By the way, that's the entirety of the gospel. He says that you may, this is the purpose behind it. Why should we put on the gospel, every element of it? Well, so that you would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's ultimately where the battle is. The battle is against the demonic realm. Let me show you just one more. Daniel 10, 13. Remember, Daniel had been praying. There was an answer that was going to come through the angel Gabriel, but Gabriel was prevented from giving the answer. Why? Well, he says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Notice, there was a, this prince isn't a real prince, it's a, de a demon. And so there was a demonic struggle. And so these demonic beings really do exist, and they really do interfere in human affairs. That's what I want us to see. So let me give you some evidence that indeed Marxism is seen as a, a yes, yes, Barb. Should I, should I go back to this screen here? Um, there are people that you've, I know all of us probably have experienced this where um, people who, who claim to be Christians um, will engage the demons and Satan directly like, um, you know, I, I belong to this Bible study in, in Buffalo with different people in there and and a couple of them say that we they do directly say I you know I talked to Satan said Satan you go away and de yeah. you know and and I I push back on that and doesn't it falls on deaf ears so I don't believe that's that you should not do that absolutely correct that's exactly right so yes exactly right so think of Jude I think it's is it Jude 12 where you have Michael the archangel and Satan are arguing over the body of Moses. We don't exactly know what the issue was, but there's an argument. And remember, Michael the archangel, Jude makes a very explicit point that Michael the archangel did not make a, 
a railing judgment, he says, against Satan, but he said, may the Lord rebuke you. And the implication is that the greater, meaning greater than us, Michael the archangel, if he went boss another angel around, how much less should you and I? Okay, so think of these three categories of people today. There will be those who deny that demons and angels exist. We want to jettison that. There will be another group that says, so this is the group two, that says, yes, demons and angels exist and we should interact with them. Well, they're right that demons and angels exist, but we shouldn't interact with them. The third group is the biblical group that say, yes, angels and demons exist, but the way we do spiritual warfare is by preaching the gospel. And if we have any problems, we, according to Ephesians, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, we go to the Lord in prayer. And because he's the head of the council, whether good or bad angels, he handles them and does what he wills. So what that person is doing that you're referring to that's interacting with the demons, they're simply transgressing boundaries that God has placed. They're, en they're entering into a, a realm that they were not ordained to go into. So absolutely. Bob, do you want to say something? Well, that? just tying together a, a lot of the things that you're covering. Yes. In such a great way here. <clears throat> Excuse me. You go back to the Deuteronomy 32. Yeah. You see these distinctions in a lot of, there were textual issues that obscured it. Yeah. There's a distinction between Israel and the other nations. Yes. The other nations are under the sons of God, which are these hostile powers, the yeah. stoichia. And uh, God draws out the boundaries of the nation. God's in charge of who's set over what. And we don't see these beings. We can't direct them around. And we appeal to the highest authority, the one who's over it all. Now, the other place you find this out is in the book of Job. Yes. So there again, the curtains pulled back. Calamity comes upon Job. His wife says, curse God and die. Bad advice, by the way. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we find out later what was going on. Yes. And before. Yeah. When Satan was one among the sons of God going before the divine council. Yeah. See that also in Kings. Right. So, in Jude is exactly right. So the issue is the false prophets invite themselves to the council meeting. And they're really reiterations of Job's comforters. Yeah. If we took charge of this, calamity wouldn't come on Job. Right. If we took charge of it, this other this nation would prosper. If we were in charge of the spirit realm, then this would happen and that would happen and we declare this. But that is not how God runs his universe. Yeah. And that God is not, uh, God is ultimately wise. Yeah. He doesn't put us in charge of a realm we can't see. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. cannot yeah. see the demons and angels and spirits. Right. And so we're in charge of what we can't see. Just for the analogy, yeah. uh, how, would you, how hard is it to be a, uh, in charge of something you can see, but it's beyond your comprehension? Right. Like if you don't know electrical engineering, you're in charge of the circuit board. Right. I don't know. If you can't tell a resistor from a capacitor, right. you can see it, but you know what's going on. How much more difficult would it be if you charge something nobody can see? Great analogy, yes. It'd be absolutely impossible. So that's why this rebuke comes in Jude. What we have to go by is what is written that we know is true. And Job was right to trust God, right. even though he couldn't figure out why something happened. And the other thing to remember, dear saints, is we don't know the cause of everything that might happen. Right. Many things happen to us, whether it's sicknesses, accidents, uh, sorrows concerning loved ones, and we have access to the throne of grace. Trying to figure out cause and effect is a mission that we'll fail at. And some people leave the faith because they quit trusting God. Amen. Well, well if God's going to be like this, then I don't think I can serve him. Yeah. That's taking the advice of Job's wife. Amen. 
Bob, thank you so much. Um, by the way, I want to just correct myself. It was Jude 9, not Jude 12. Just to let you know, that's where the Moses dispute happens the, over the body between Michael the Archangel and Satan. So thank you. That's well, excellent. Sorry to say so much here. No, no, that's excellent. It's, it, you're exactly right. And um, what I want to do is I'll come back to this. this is we'll leave off here. But I want to recommend a book. And this book is written by a man who's Catholic. So I'm not... I'm not I'm not uh, endorsing his theology, but he's not writing on theology. He's writing on Marxism. His name is Dr. Paul Kangor. And he wrote a book called The Devil and Karl Marx. And what you'll be stunned by is just how religious Karl Marx was. Let me give you one example. Karl Marx, I forget the year, but he and a friend who had been kicked out of seminary, this is in Germany, his friend had been kicked out of seminary. I can't recall his name. It wasn't Ingalls. It was someone else. He had been kicked out of seminary because of heresy. And on a particular Easter morning, they deliberately rode in to a German town in order to mock the, the, the quote-unquote triumphal entry of Christ. So these were men who were known to be mockers of Christ and his doctrines. And what I want you to see is that Karl Marx himself said this. He said, communism begins where atheism begins. So... What I want you to get your heads around is that Marxism isn't some benign, oh, just it's a political movement. No, it's a, it's a theology, an ideology, it's a false religion. And one of the things you'll learn is as mass murder follows Marxists wherever they go, is I want you to remember a saying that Karl Marx is a jealous God, small g, and that you shall have no other gods before him. Trust me on that. If you read Paul Kangor's book, you will see the mass murder that they put into the world. And in fact, Karl Marx himself was one of the greatest racists of all time. Karl Marx called his Cuban son-in-law the N-word, and he called him gorilla. Not a fighting gorilla, but the animal gorilla. And so what I've always told people is I'm shocked that Patrice Cullors, who claims to be, she's a black woman who is the founder of BLM, I was shocked to hear that she was a trained Marxist. Why would you follow a man who was known to be a racist, who was so vile that only six people showed up at his funeral, and he allowed his own infant to die because Ingalls gave him $500, or whatever the de denomination of money is in Germany, and instead of giving that to his wife, whose his own son was starving, took the money and went on a gambling binge in Paris. That's the kind of man Karl Marx was. And wherever Marxism has been tried, it has led to mass murder. Why? Because you shall have no other gods before Marx. And that is the satanic nature of Marxism. I'm not ashamed of saying it. I will say it to my last breath. It is a satanic, evil, vile, disgusting, racist religion. Um, let me give you one more thing just to think about. When we had the 2020 riots and BLM was riding all over, let me tell you about a statue that they tore down. They tore a statue down in Madison, Wisconsin of a man named Hans Christian Hegg. Hans Christian Hegg in the 1800s belonged to a group called the Wide Awakers. He was an abolitionist. He was a, he was a white man against slavery, so much so that he was willing to put his life on the line and a Democrat back then put a bullet in him. Why? Because he said, no, all human beings are made in the image of God and we shouldn't judge one another based on the color of our skin. His statue was torn down, but Lenin's statue in Seattle remains standing and strong. So you tell me, you ask your average person that's involved with BLM, say, hey, why did you tear Hans Christian Haig's statue down, but Lenin, who was a Marxist, his statue stands, if you're so against slavery. What I'm telling you, is the evidence is overwhelming. This is a satanic religion, and that's why they're joining with jihadists. And they want, why is all of the anti Jewish, anti Israel sentiment on left wing institutions in America? Why? Let's get two different colleges Hillsdale or Harvard. <laughs> that's all you have to know. Is the anti Semitism coming from conservative run Hillsdale? Or the people who want to wipe out every Jew on the planet, are they marching at Harvard? It's Harvard. Because Marxism is a satanic, evil religion that wants to wipe out every Jew on the planet because you shall have no other gods before Karl Marx. And they know if they can make God a liar, game, set, match. That's what the battle's about. So with that, 
I'll close in prayer. Wetting your whistle for next time. Okay. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truths that you give us in Scripture. I do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would enable us to contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints, that we would be those who love others. We would love other Marxists, Lord, even enemies that you've called us to, but we would also be salt and light, that we wouldn't allow lies to prevail and that we would stand against these things, Lord. We pray for your hand of protection to be upon us, upon Israel. We pray that you'd put the gospel upon our lips, give us boldness, and give us a, a loving spirit for others. I do pray for Bob today as he preaches the gospel to us out of 1 Corinthians 10. I pray, Lord, that you give us ears to hear. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but also doers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.